Insiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Stuart, we're back. That's right, we're back. This this is the Curbsiders. Uh, this is Matt Watto here with Stuart Brigham, and That's no me. no Paul Williams tonight, Stuart. So I guess yeah. you're going to have to do the honors. That's right. Paul's uh, I don't know. He's doing something important. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the Curbsiders, this is a podcast, an internal medicine podcast, where we speak with experts, uh, we interview them, and we bring you the clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, normally, Paul's with us, and he kind of berates the audience about uh, skipping the first part. And, I, you know, I actually went through the data. Only 4.1% of our audience skips the first part. So to that 4.1%, look at the timestamp and skip ahead. Everyone else, welcome to the show. Welcome. Now, do you have uh, pre-Paul and post-Paul? Because, I mean, Paul's been berating the audience oh, for a couple of months. But before I, that, I, I, don't I wonder how many were skipped. I, I, yeah, that's a, that's a, I could probably go back and try to do that, but that's a lot of data crunching to do. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll leave it to I you if you think job, that's no. a valuable use of your time. Uh, no, no, that pressure. is not at all. I have a day job. I, well, I'd like to keep it too. <clears throat> uh, on this episode, uh, be, uh, before we go too far but, off but, the rails, on this episode, I wanted to tell you that we talk all about rheumatoid arthritis. We answer lots of the questions from social media. We basically go through the diagnosis uh, both the history, the exam, what labs you should order initially, and kind of how you should package the patient up before you send them off to your friendly neighborhood rheumatologist, if you have one. We talked about some of the ins and outs of therapy, some of the preventive measures, immunizations. Yeah, so basically a lot. And uh, the, you will find this tremendously helpful, as we did. Our guest is Dr. Robert McLean. He is a practicing rheumatologist in New Haven, Connecticut, with the Northeast Medical Group of the Yale New Haven Health System, where he also serves as the Medical Director of Clinical Quality. He is an Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. He has been active with the American College of Physicians for many years, initially with the Connecticut chapter as the advocacy leader for its Health and Public Policy Committee. He served as the Connecticut chapter governor from 2009 to 2013 and has been on the Board of Regents since then as well. He will become ACP president in April at the annual internal medicine meeting in Philadelphia, which all of you should be coming to, uh, to uh, join Stuart, Paul, and I, and all of our Curbsiders friends. And uh, maybe you'll get to meet Dr. Robert McLean as well. So here's our conversation with Dr. McLean. What do you call two chief residents that want to go into rheumatology? I don't know. Joint chiefs. <laughs> all right not bad actually made sense <laughs> yeah and actually made that one up on the fly <laughs> uh, i'm i'm glad paul's not here robert thank you so much for joining us and as always i'm going to ask you for a one-liner and if you would maybe include something that you do outside the world of medicine just so the audience can get a better sense of who you are Sure. Well, I'm a 56-year-old rheumatologist. I would call myself a recovering primary care internist since I used to do that. I'm a lucky husband. I'm a father of two wonderful sons. I'm a passionate physician advocate. 
I'm a trivia fan, especially old movies and 70s and 80s music. And I just happen to be president-elect of the American College of Physicians. You're, so you're a trivia fan. Are do you? Uh, what's that? Are you like a quizzo, like champion? Well, funny. So, um, a friend of mine. I'm in New Haven, so I didn't mention that. And uh, there's actually a classic old uh, kind of bar pub at Yale called Maury's. Uh, very well known, the Whiff and Poof singer, all this stuff. And I was told back in early December that they actually have a Thursday night trivia contest. So a friend, have a friend, uh, you have to be a member of Maury's. I've subsequently joined for a whopping 99 bucks a year so that I can go there without him. Uh, said, hey, listen, join us. There's this competitive thing. People you have to have up to six members and you go. And it sounds like it's a series across the country. It's called Pub Busters. I'd never heard of it before. So everyone throws in three bucks into the hat and this group of six people. And you said, around for two hours and there is really tough trivia questions and they play some you know 10 seconds of a song or pieces of a song as well as uh there's some photos who is this they show just eyes of somebody they have all sorts of stuff and um in i think four appearances there my team has won twice it's fun and exciting and quite frankly going down there and spending two hours and not doing medical stuff, although occasionally a medical question comes up, and I'm like the star. Although one of the other teams has, <laughs> I must call out uh, a fellow a physician from Yale, uh, an oncologist who is smart as heck with her husband. They're a team of two, and they actually almost won, um, but they're really good also. But anyway, um, it's it is a wonderful escape and a lot of fun. And I, uh, it's one of those things where you know it's kind of like date night out. You, you just disconnect and you go do something, but it's it's a lot of fun. Do you like how you threw in there that they almost won? It's like a back-handed back way of saying it, they won. You correct. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> um, so this is a, a question that's uh, typically posed by Paul. Is there any book that you think um, would be a, I don't know, something that you recommend that someone should read, a physician or anyone? Yeah, you know, I, w- I think probably... Probably the most influential book I can think of in the last decade. It's a book called Nudge. I don't know if you guys have read that. It, it um, I think, brought the field of behavioral economics into the, I think, the, the general uh, vernacular. Um, written by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. Richard Thaler subsequently won the Nobel Prize for Economics, I think, a couple of years ago. And it introduces, uh, in a very straightforward way, the field of behavioral economics in somewhat of a public policy venue. But it's something that I think everyone should know about. I think especially we as physicians in terms of we're constantly trying to get people to do the right thing and change their behavior and do healthier things. And uh, it's just a fascinating way to to understand psychology. Um, and it's, it, it's really in everything we do. It's in, uh, it's in change management that I do. One of the other things I do, in addition to practicing rheumatology, I'm the medical director of uh, clinical quality for, um, at Northeast Medical Group, part of the, the Yale network. And we're trying to get people to pay attention to quality and sometimes to do things better. And you're not going to change or get people to change unless you understand what makes them behave. So it's, it's a fascinating book that I think most people, once they read, they will start to see behavioral economics everywhere. And it is. There's articles everywhere that show up about it. Medical journals and uh, business journals and just pop stuff. Interesting. It's probably about seven, eight years old. Right. Let's let's just say Cashlack. Uh, uh, I was at a Grand Rounds at Cashlack and a, a person who runs a, I believe it's even called a nudge unit 
within yes, Cashback. Um, they they uh, they gave a great grand rounds and all uh, nudge and all the other various books on the topic and s- sort of how this has been studied to influence physician and patient behavior. It's really it's really powerful stuff. I I think there's not just that book. There's a lot of other ones. Definitely worth sounds worth checking out. I haven't read that one. Huh. Interesting. I would like to ask. If uh, so, you 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 mentioned you're president elect of the ACP. You you also mentioned you're you're winning at trivia. So it sounds like you've had a lot of successes. Can you tell us about a time that you failed at something or struggled with something? What did you learn from it? How did you overcome that? So if I were to look at as as a physician, I kind of look at diagnostic failures or mistakes, just because especially as an internist, we do a lot of diagnosing. And that's kind of, I think, one of the things we enjoy doing as internists. Um, Within rheumatology, I can think of probably a couple scenarios where this feeds into the discussion tonight of inflammatory arthritis, where I um, might have mistaken or thought uh, that something like someone had psoriatic arthritis. Um, and they just weren't responding to various treatments for that. And it turns out that they had kind of a low-grade polyarticular gout. Um, I can think of several cases like that where the not symmetrical small joint arthritis that we're going to talk about more tonight, um, the oligoarticular stuff that kind of bounces around and isn't quite as clear-cut is, is just that. It's not always as clear-cut. So psoriatic arthritis and gout can sometimes kind of mimic each other. And I think there are a couple of cases where I missed that and it took longer than I think on hindsight, it, maybe it should have. From a, from a bigger kind of failure standpoint, I think this kind of gets at the work I'm doing at more of the system change level is, um, and I'm still always learning about this. I think that uh, it it's hard to, I think, recognize how hard change is and how, uh, how much buy-in you need to get from physicians, especially, um, to really get them to change, you know, uh, quality improvement, things like that, trying to tell people, oh, you got to do it this way or, you know, put the, put the data in the EMR this way or that way. Come on, you're going to get better data that way. And people have habits and people have workflows and changing those things is really, really hard. And I think I sometimes don't appreciate how hard that is. It, yeah, it's, it's tough. Internists, I, I think internists tend to be type A, set in their ways. Uh, and yeah, and then like people are so busy, it's it's hard to get them to change you. So you gotta, you gotta use this nudge book to get them to buy in and uh, influence their behaviors. I think the, the Heath brothers wrote that book, Switch, which is about, a lot about it talks a lot about that sort of thing as well how to how to affect change in organizations uh Stuart, any other questions before we get on to the main topic no i think that that's that pretty much sums it up okay can can you hear my dog in the background yeah we could hear your dog a little bit i oh, i think the very audience faintly. i think the audience will give us a pass on that like okay you know i like i've said this before whenever we have dogs barking in the background on the show we're, we've traditionally been a cat show, so I like once in a while. I like when we get to feature a dog on the show. <laughs> it's a new puppy. I can't. He's he's kenneled right now. Stuart, let's. Oh well. Why don't we skip over? Uh, actually, did you have a pick of the week that was like a burning pick of the week? If if, if you did, I mean, it's, you can it's give not. It. It's not a what me or him. You. 
Stuart. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's not a burning pick of the week. Uh, only that I I do think it's a good series. Um, the Orville, the executive producer is actually Seth MacFarlane, well known for like the Family Guy and a few other cartoons as well. Um, he kind of picks on Star Trek for the first few episodes, but really grows legs on its own. It's actually a very good sci-fi show in in its own right, and uh, I give it two thumbs up. It's a really good show. All right. I'm not going to give a pick of the week in interest of time. So why don't why don't you get us through uh, the first clinical case or the first part of the case here, Stuart? All right, you ready? So we are at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, and we're seeing a 58 year old Caucasian female. It's Miss Kaplan Felty. She arrives for her appointment to discuss pain in her hands, her right wrist, and uh, right knee. Miss Felty is an overall healthy lady with a past medical history of hypertension and well, or that's well controlled with my favorite medication, chlorothaladone. As you review her chart, you begin to think through your differential diagnosis for polyarthritis. So, what are some of the key points of a patient's history and physical examination that might be suggestive of rheumatoid arthritis? Well, um, as opposed to saying rheumatoid arthritis, I would first kind of classify, do I, am I dealing with somebody who has inflammatory arthritis versus mechanical or degenerative? Because those are the two big categories that I tend to use. And usually the, the questions I'm asking that are most helpful are trying to get a sense of if, whether the pain that she's having is worse in the morning or in the evening trying to really pull out whether uh, she has true morning stiffness, as mm-hmm. I would call it, or as we tend to use or rely on in rheumatology. But I don't, you kind of want to really string people along, but not really use those words because you don't want to lead them and plant them too much. I mean, by and large, if people have morning stiffness, if you give them the opportunity, they will say, I am so stiff. I can't move for, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour. You know, if you say to somebody, are you stiff in the morning? Everyone's going to say yes. You know, and then the then you get into, well, is it five minutes, 10 minutes? You know, you kind of almost like go down the wrong road. So you want to, you want to really dance around it and give people the chance to, to, to uh, volunteer how stiff they are. Cause if they're stiff, they will not hold back. Um, and for some of that, and so in addition to that, you know, what, what might be suggestive of, of RA or inflammatory arthritis, you know, if it's, if it's mechanical, it's going to hurt more at the end of the day as they're pounding on the joint. So that's probably one of the key points that I would start to get into. Do you, okay. So you might ask them something like, uh, when you get up in the morning, how are you feeling? How do your joints feel? Is, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. How do you feel in the morning is probably the question I asked the most. And then I kind of really asked the second, third follow-up questions to that to really try and get a good sense of that. Is, is there a particular cutoff? I've heard 30 minutes. I've heard one hour. Is there any validated yeah, cutoff? Range. Okay. No, nothing that I've ever seen. Um, you know, if you go back and look at some of the original uh, kind of criteria or definitions of rheumatoid arthritis back 20, 30 years ago, it may have said morning stiffness greater than 30 minutes, if I recall. Um, but yeah, you kind of, that, that 30, it has to be at least 30 to 60 minutes. As I say, people will frequently say, oh, I'm stiff for five minutes. And then once I get to the bathroom, I'm fine. Well, no, that that's not inflammatory arthritis sounding to me. Okay. Did you want to add anything else in there, Matt? What I would ask for this lady is, you know, just based on this, based on her age and what we've given you so far, is there other than just this, infl- is that your main differential, just any kind of inflammatory versus mechanical? Or do you not, do you have enough information to get any deeper than that? Well, so she's got, she's got, 
several she's got it's both of her hands so it's bilateral which helps it's not necessarily bilateral all the joints i think when you see uh especially small you know rheumatoid arthritis really tends to be small joint bilateral mcp pip joints tends to spare dip joints if you see dip joint either stiffness or pain or enlargement you're usually talking about osteoarthritis maybe psoriatic arthritis um, so when you know, back to the original distinction, you've got mechanical osteoarthritis, degenerative, those are all kind of synonymous. And then you have the category of inflammatory arthritis. And those are several different categories. You've got, you know, what, what could be causing inflammation? What could be autoimmune stuff? Rheumatoid arthritis being the most classical. Um, the other categories beside that are spondylarthropathies, which include psoriatic arthritis, which affects small joints and the spine. You've got others that affect just the spine, typically ankylosing spondylitis, inflammatory arthritis that go that is associated with inflammatory bowel disease. That's in the spondylarthritis family. Then you have kind of infection-related autoimmune stuff. So people who have different viruses, hepatitis in particular, parvovirus, they can get a true inflammatory arthritis associated with the viral infection. Then you've got um, kind of a reactive arthritis, things like the chlamydia, shigella, uh, inflammatory reactive arthritis, what used to be called Reiter's syndrome in some cases. Those, strictly speaking, if they're truly kind of progressing, are fall within the spondylarthropathy family because they get they have sacroiliitis and some back stuff as well. Um, another one of the inflammatory arthritis associations is Lyme disease. You know, it's I don't think it's really clear that there's an infection in the joint. You, if you do PCR on joint fluid, you might find evidence of it, but it's hard to say that it's clearly infection of the joint, but it's it's associated. Um, and then you've got and then there's obviously other inflammatory arthritis. You can have a septic joint. I mean, that's inflammation. It's an infection. And then the final one really is probably um, crystalline arthritis. I mean, gout, pseudo gout. Those are inflammatory. So when we're talking about the distinction here, it's really kind of more the autoimmune inflammatory family versus kind of mechanical. And she clearly has, you know, the, it, it sounds kind of inflammatory. Um, it's been going on for, well, actually, we don't know how long it's been going on yet, do we? No, no, I don't think so. We'll, we'll find out shortly, unless you're a soothsayer. No. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more. Oh, right. So, Miss Felty, she has had no recent illnesses and states that she's had progressive pain in multiple joints over the last year. She denies any skin changes or any changes in the way her hands or knees feel. Wait. She denies any... I'm sorry. Or changes in the... Yeah. However, she states that her pain is definitely worse in the morning for at least 61 minutes, and it doesn't seem that activity has a predictable impact. She does feel that the pain in her joints is affecting her quality of life. To get a better idea of her overall health, you ask her to rate her global degree of illness on a scale of 1 to 10, and she gives herself a 2. In the clinic, she is a febrile and normal vital signs. Exam is notable for tenderness to palpation of 1 PIP and MCP on the right hand. Two PIPs on the left hand, the right knee, and the right wrist. The tender PIPs on the left hand appear to be swollen. So, what do you think now? Well, so she, it's, she's got some bilateral stuff. It's not perfectly symmetrical, which is 
probably real world. Uh, I've seen plenty of people who have new onset rheumatoid arthritis, and it's not always, you know, MCPs two through four and PIPs two through four. It just, it's not always perfectly symmetrical. Um, it's kind of a little bit oligoarticular. You got the knee, you got the wrist. It's not both of them. Um, so it's not absolute that she's got rheumatoid arthritis necessarily. It's been going on for a year, so it doesn't sound like necessarily a response to an acute illness, but you never know. Okay. Um, sometimes something like parvovirus I'd mentioned actually can mimic um, rheumatoid arthritis for you know a couple of weeks, quite frankly, sometimes longer than that. When you look at the uh, the definition of rheumatoid arthritis, going back to the criteria from, I guess, when I was a fellow, probably early 1990s, you needed to have to fulfill those criteria, which is a whole other kind of discussion point later, maybe. Um, you needed to have six weeks of like daily, you know, morning stiffness symptoms. Well, why six weeks? Well, it's because there were so, there's so many other things that mimic RA that are self-limited. A lot of mm -hmm. those being some sort of idiopathic post-viral conditions. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, high serologies and things, which I'm sure we'll get to, you know, may kind of point you one direction or the other. But a lot of things kind of pop up in there. We don't really understand what turns the immune system on. And then, then they kind of turn off. So you don't want to label people too early. So speaking about that, so speaking about the immune system, what uh, what labs do you think we should get in our primary care clinic? And in this case, we're seeing this patient with uh, posse uh, oligoarthritis. Right. So what labs? So um, I think so. The, so the labs, presuming that she hasn't had anything done in a while. I mean, is a, is a when someone is sent to me as a rheumatology consultant, one of the first things I'm trying to do is track down old lab results because quite frankly, I don't want to repeat stuff that was done just a few weeks ago that might be okay or normal. I think uh, too often too often tests just get duplicated. I mean, we see this all the time. Sometimes it's because we don't have access to labs. Sometimes it's because someone doesn't bother to ask for them, and which is kind of frustrating and I think kind of a, a waste of resources at times. But sometimes things change over time and they do warrant getting rechecked. So it, I wouldn't generalize overall. I would say if she has not had any labs done in you know, a few months, even if she had something a few months ago, I would check kind of the standard. Is there in evidence of inflammation? So I would typically do a SED rate and a CRP. Um, I think a, a, a pearl I would throw out there is with the CRP, um, there, are, there are two CRP ass, assays. There's a highly sensitive CRP, and then there's the regular old CRP. And the highly sensitive, I mean, I think most people or a lot of people I find really don't understand the distinction. Um, and I don't know that the highly sensitive CRP is, the, I don't know how to interpret that if it's high. So let me take it. So the, the, the highly sensitive CRP, so-called cardiosensitive or the cardioselective CRP, is, is basically aimed at people who, ha who do not have, have inflammation. So what if somebody you know, has a high SED rate, they've got new onset RA. Well, if you do that CRP assay and their real CRP is like, you know, 50, you know, but this assay is really only designed to look at low levels, you know, you, you may get a really cockeyed number. It might be really high. It might not be all that high. I just don't know how to interpret it. But the bottom line is try to order the regular old standard CRP test, not the cardio one, and do a SED rate. CRPs tend to go up and down a little faster than SED rates when you're following inflammatory markers. So it's a long-winded way of saying I'd get a SED rate and a CRP. Um, I would get typically so – that's, that's kind of number one. Um, I would probably, if I was thinking the person had 
potential rheumatoid arthritis, I would do a rheumatoid factor and what's now called a CCP antibody. Those are kind of standard. The rheumatoid factor is an <clears throat> IgG directed, or actually, I'm sorry, it's an IgM directed at the FC portion of an IgG. It's been recognized for, gosh, 50, 60 years to have been a marker in rheumatoid arthritis. The CCP was more recently discovered in the late 90s as being an antibody that actually seemed to be highly, more highly correlated with rheumatoid arthritis than the rheumatoid factor. And actually, will go seem to go up and down with disease activity in some people. So there's probably utility once someone actually has rheumatoid arthritis with depending upon, you know, whether you're trying to track their activity and you can't otherwise tell, potentially monitoring the CCP um, to, to, to assess disease activity over time. Um, or if somebody is, um, I mean, for the most part, monitoring disease activity is kind of a new field using some of these indexes. Do you just use a sed rate? There's, it's, it's not really clear exactly how to do it. There are different schools of thought. There are different models and incorporated systems into EMRs over exactly how to do that. Um, there's not an absolute way except that we should be trying to track disease activity, as we say, and, and treat to lower disease activity. I, I don't know that any of them offhand include sequential CCP. They, they might include other things. Um, but what, what the point I was making was that the CCP antibody might be actually part of the pathologic process, whereas the rheumatoid factor is kind of just a marker, but not directly related to disease activity. So in addition to those tests, uh, as, I, as I say, there I'd mentioned before the various types of inflammatory arthritis. You also, in the back of your mind, kind of want to look at other systemic illnesses. Could someone have an inflammatory arthritis as part of some sort of a systemic vasculitis or something else? That's usually going to come up in a review of systems and weight loss and fever and just other stuff. Um, or could it be something perineoplastic? That's always something also to think, keep in the back of your mind. If, if things aren't really adding up, is something mm -hmm. else going on? So for those reasons, it's always a good idea, especially if someone hasn't had it checked recently, to check a CBC and a chem panel. You want to know that someone's renal function and liver function is normal, their blood count's okay. And also, if the, some of those things aren't normal at baseline, is there some other disease going on? It also might have an impact on what other you know, disease-modifying agents you might use if there's something else going on. So having those as a baseline is, is always a good idea. I would not do an ANA. I would throw that out there as the other pearl I would throw out there. I see far too many ANAs done as kind of part of an inflammatory arthritis panel. Um, an ANA is a test that can be really helpful when you think someone has lupus. It is not a good idea to be doing that because you're going to find a lot of false positives. If someone has a, a bunch of other antibodies floating around, I could almost bet that they're going to have a positive ANA at 1 to 40 or 1 to 80. And it just doesn't help. And then it leads you down a... Uh, a rabbit hole of other tests that you kind of feel compelled to do now. Meanwhile, the patient went and looked up and they come back and they're scared to death that they have lupus. It just, you know, there are situations where I, I don't think someone has lupus and I might check an ANA because I'm trying to see is there some inflammatory activity. But I know this lady has inflammatory activity. You know, I don't need an ANA at this point. Unless something changes, I would not do it for sure as part of the initial blood stuff. All right. So the PCM in this case ordered an, uh, a CBC, RFP, all the wonderful stuff, ordered a rheumatoid factor, which was low positive, and an ESR, which came back at 18. Uh, plain films were, in this case, reassuring. 
you tend to calculate where you opted to calculate for the ACR slash European League Against Rheumatism, which has a more awesome name than ACR. The score is six, consistent with RA. And the disease activity score, 28, the DAS, 28, score of 4.07, suggestive of moderate disease activity. So several days after reviewing results, you follow up with Miss Felty. So a couple questions for you. So how common is RA? And is this a common presentation for RA? So RA probably affects about 1% of adults in industrialized countries. So that's that's not insignificant, um, which means it's you know well over a million Americans. Interestingly, um, we tend to think of RA and a number of autoimmune conditions as, as being more common in women. In rheumatoid arthritis, um, and this goes back to my training as a fellow, and I think it really hasn't changed much, we tend to see a little bit of a bimodal distribution. So in the 30s, 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, you see it's like vast majority are women in that age with new onset RA. But then you kind of, kind of, kind of flattens out maybe in the 50s. And then up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you kind of have a more an elderly onset. And the, the uh, incidence there is actually equal men and women of, of true, or what we call rheumatoid arthritis. Um, I should say, so when we call rheumatoid arthritis, in the olden days, there was seropositive rheumatoid arthritis, and there was seronegative rheumatoid arthritis. And that was in the days when the only serology that we had was a rheumatoid factor. So back in those days, probably two-thirds of people who had clinically what looked like symmetrical small joint arthritis um, that had, you know, was there for a long enough period of time and all that, two-thirds of them were positive for a rheumatoid factor. Um, and a third were not. When the CCP antibodies kind of got got recognized and we started doing those on everyone too, I would say probably 80% of, 80 to 90% of real classical rheumatoid arthritis have a positive either CCP or rheumatoid factor. So it's almost like more helpful. But we tend to do both because if, you know, if one's negative, the other one might be positive. But they tend to have, they have to be a fairly high titer. You know, it's fairly common to see, you know, a borderline positive rheumatoid factor. And by and large, we don't really tend to hang our hat on it unless it's like, you know, three times the normal range. Because right. um, there's just so many antibodies that cross-react with a lot of these things. So the tests are helpful, but they're not definitive. It's a clinical diagnosis. You got to look at somebody's hands, examine them, get a sense of, is there actual, you know, kind of synovial thickening or swelling or that kind of thing? A lot of people have arthralgias and don't really have much uh, uh, objectively in their joints. And then sometimes it's hard, it's hard to tell. So, so back to her. So it's interesting. So she has her set rates only 18, which is a little bit surprising. Um, I can't argue with the plain films. I didn't mention those before. I wouldn't necessarily do plain films on somebody who's had, you know, a month or so of, uh, arthritis because they're not going to see changes, even if they have, you know, full blown rheumatoid arthritis. But this lady had symptoms for, I think most of, you know, better part of a year. Mm -hmm. So she may well have some low grade changes. So, you know, you might you might be surprised. You know, plain films, low tech, sometimes pretty high yield, minimal radiation, low cost. I mean, I can't argue with doing them in somebody who's had a year of symptoms. Uh, as for the other stuff, the uh, the ACR ULAR score and the the DAS score, um, 
it's interesting that those were done here kind of at the first visit. I mean, by and large, those are to kind of track people who have the diagnosis. I don't know that, strictly speaking, they really have any role in helping make a diagnosis or not. If you kind of look at what makes those things up, it's a bunch of different variables. If she ends up having, you know, psoriatic arthritis, <laughs> because, you know, next week she has a big psoriasis patch and, you know, something else changes and her sed rate, you know, isn't all that high, which also kind of makes me question it. I mean, you know, I would say in my, um, in my non-evidence-based opinion, you know, probably, oh, I'd say 80% of people with rheumatoid arthritis have an elevated sed rate. If they don't have an elevated sed rate, well over at least 30, um, I'm kind of questioning myself. Doesn't rule it out completely, but it just tends to make it less likely. Whereas the spondyl arthropathies like psoriatic arthritis, you just, you can't rely on that nearly as much. Sed rates, CRPs, they just, for whatever reason, their inflammatory mediators don't tend to turn on those proteins. And more, more frequently, not always, but more frequently, those are, are normal which makes those even more clinical because you have much less blood testing help to say, aha, this is, you know, psoriatic arthritis. You don't, you just don't have that. Yeah. Oh, I think in this case, we just had a really overzealous PCM. So that, that'll explain some of it. Robert, I wanted to try to, I, I just want to try to recap a little bit of what we talked about for the audience so far. It sounds like mainly with rheumatoid arthritis, we're, we're basing the diagnosis on the clinical findings Small joint arthritis is probably going to be symmetrical for the most part, but in real world, not 100% symmetrical. We're going to see probably an elevated ESR or CRP and probably a positive rheumatoid factor or CCP antibody. And if we have kind of all those things or some variety of those things, we can be thinking about rheumatoid arthritis. Prob there, there's not really a specific score that we're using. I Every time I'm reading about this, it's always like these scores, these criteria are mostly just for research settings. In clinical practice, it's more, it's the clinical diagnosis, like you were saying. Is that is that right? Is there anywhere that I'm off? I'm just trying no, to- No, no, I think, I think you summarized that well. So the next thing that, the next thing that I wanted to ask you is- um, with this, with this ESR CRP, we had. I just think this is a fun thing to talk about. We had talked about this on a prior episode. <laughs> Our uncle Juan uh, is a he's a rheumatologist who's like, I don't know, Stuart. How much older than us is he? Like, like two decades older, maybe out uh, on three. It, I don't know. I think he he's almost sixty now. Okay, so yeah, he's quite. He's like, I don't know, twenty some years older than us, and he's uh, like, that's not far from me. He's, yeah, yeah, I told yeah. you I was fifty six at the beginning. Remember? Yeah. So I, Uncle, that's why I didn't want to say that. So, so when I was come when I was coming in, uh, he, you know, he was he was one of my first uh, bosses. He was a rheumatologist, and he would be like, "All right, the ESR, you know, if it's a woman, half half their age plus ten, that's you know that that's where I draw the line for for it being elevated. So if the woman's eighty, you know, half of that is forty plus ten, so it has to be fifty or above for him to call it elevated. And for a man, it's about half their age." So for an 80-year-old man, 40 or above would be elevated. Do you have any kind of rules of thumb like that? Do you find that that holds true in practice? Yeah, I, I don't have any rules of thumb. I, th I think that some labs, if you kind of look at the normal range, have a cutoff of 20, and some have a cutoff, I think, of 30, typically. I would say that, I mean, clearly it goes up with age. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. to All, all, all SED rates are doing is, is measuring gamma globulins and uh, fibrinogen. 
you know, and if if someone has a, a, a dysfibrinogenemia or they have sickle cell anemia so that they're they can't form Rouleau, their set rate will never be elevated. I mean, the, the, the kind of the whole concept of what is this really looking at is, is really quite fascinating and a, and a fun teaching point to make um, as a rheumatologist, because most people have no idea what it really, you know, what, what goes into it. But taking that back, um, so it's a cheap and easy test. And it's I, I, I do it pretty frequently um, in cases where I clearly suspect a rheumatoid problem, but also where I see people have different aches and pains for different reasons. And sometimes you just never really know. And it's a very reassuring um, test when it comes back normal. If I don't, if I don't think anything's going on, you know, I can, I can really explain to the patient that, you know, this is usually a good red flag and, you know, your red flag's not up. So I think that, you know, you need more sleep and maybe you have fibromyalgia type aches and pains, you know, which has a lot of legitimate stuff to it. It's not really a, a junk term like a lot of people tend to think of it as. But I think a lot of helping people understand why they don't feel good um, is part of being able to explain all that. And sometimes a cheap and easy SED rate that's normal is very reassuring and hopefully can help people, you know, kind of stop doctor shopping when they don't feel good. Um, but it's it's a it's a fascinating test. I want to ask you to go back a little bit to the exam. We, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but it, Paul's not here, and he'd kill me if I didn't ask you about the exam. What are you looking for? How would you sort of describe that to the audience? Any specific maneuvers that you think are high yield? So I think, well, I mean, the the knees are probably where non-rheumatologists get the most exposure to a swollen joint because it's a fairly kind of tight balloon around the joint. There's kind of little reflections and kind of dimples. And if someone has extra fluid in their knee, that little dimple, you know, will kind of get pulled out. You might get a bulge sign and those kind of things, which usually people who have had at least some exposure to in just medical residency training without needing a rheumatology fellowship with the hands. I think um, the MCP joints and the PIP joints, especially um, you tend to get kind of just a, a juiciness as you squeeze someone's joint or how they look, especially when you look at the MCP joints, we talk about losing that space between the knuckles, kind of the Valley goes away. Um, with the wrists, I think um, sometimes if you, if you kind of if you press over the top of someone's wrists, you know, there's there's not a lot. The synovium is pretty thin, so you kind of feel the bones right there, and you kind of get used to there being a little bit of a spongy layer in between there when someone's synovial lining is kind of thicker. Obviously, if you press on that stuff and it's tender, if they can't put their joint through a range of motion either actively and you can't passively, um, that can be, you know, suggestive that something's wrong in the joint. Another pl- another thing which I really do like to show people kind of on teaching rounds is the elbow. People will sometimes get, you know, kind of synovial irritation around their elbow, whether rheumatoid arthritis or other stuff. And if, if that's the case, probably because of some of the tension in the muscles and ligaments around the elbow, people can pretty easily develop a flexion contracture of the elbow. And so I will literally mechanically kind of try to straighten out someone's elbow to 90 degrees, you know, literally just kind of passively straighten their elbow, you know, while they're just, you know, sitting there with you. And you'll be amazed if you do that, how many people, you know, if you try to straighten their elbow, they have like a, you know, 10, 20 degree contracture. It just won't go straight. 
And it might be like, hey, did you injure your elbow? Did you fall on it? Is, is something, but especially elderly people who may have had some inflammatory stuff, you'll find low-grade flexion contractures in people. And sometimes you'll be really surprised at how much. I've I've never really uh, thought to do thought to do the elbow thing. The elbow's before. a great thing. I mean, and kind of squeezing someone's joints. You know, tell them to make a fist. You know, can they truly make a fist, a tight fist? You know, have them you know bend their fingers, kind of like a bear claw. You know, tell you know really have people put their joints through a full range of motion that you are kind of looking at. You know, I mean, hey, internal res- medicine residents are great at listening at hearts and lungs, but they just don't examine joints all that carefully or well because they're not trained to. And then they're not comfortable yeah. doing it, um, you know, with, with the feet and the ankles. I mean, the, the feet are kind of like the hands. And so the, the, the MTP joints, the, you know, underneath the, the base of the toes, those are really parallel to the MCP joints. So in the same way that the MCPs are kind of the most classically involved with RA, MTP joints are. And, I, you know, you, you, you squeeze someone's feet. You, you squeeze their kind of the, their, across the top of their foot, over, across the ball of their feet. And if they have MTP soreness, they will tell you. And they say, when you ask, but what do your feet feel like when you wake up in the morning? You know, you may not, you know, as, as you're going, how, how do you walk to the bathroom? And I'll say like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm walking on marbles because their MTP joints are sore and almost like raw feeling. And once you hear somebody say, I feel like I'm walking on marbles or rocks, you know, wow, that's. You, when you pull that out of them, that tells you there's something wrong with their MTP joints. These are great pearls. I want to ask. I want to ask a little bit about how do you explain? Let's say this woman we diagnose her. Actually, I'm even forgetting. I'm forgetting her Kaplan. name. I think it was uh, Kaplan. Yeah, oh, her name is Mrs. Felty. It's oh, a great Felty. name. Miss yeah, Miss Kaplan Felty. <laughs> Miss Kaplan Felty. Yes. So Miss Felty, how would you explain to her? that how do you explain to the patient when you first diagnose someone with rheumatoid arthritis like how do you what does it sound like how do you counsel them so uh, i will explain that it, it looks like based upon the you know where she has inflammation and what some of the blood tests show that um that her immune system has gotten turned on and is causing inflammation in her joints. And we don't know what causes that. Uh, you know, I'll kind of usually have asked some family history, you know, a good number of people, maybe 50% have some family, you know, parent, uncle, someone in the family has something. There are a couple HLA, you know, kind of associations, not strong enough that we're actually testing that in people. Unlike with the spondyloarthropathies that I mentioned before, where there might be situations you're really wondering, you might do an HLA B27 on those people because because, you know, 90% of people who have the spondyloarthropathies have that genetic type. That's another test I see done far too much. Someone has a nonspecific arthralgias. You don't go just chasing and doing an HLA-B27. I don't know how much they cost, but I see that far too often. It's uh, just not good. You know, it's not wise test utilization. But anyway, so there's a genetic link. So I'll say, listen, you know, maybe they have a genetic, you know, someone in the family sometimes, maybe they don't. But I'll say, listen, I don't know what caused this. You know, uh, it may well be that you had, you know, some nonspecific viral thing. But basically something turned on a gene that turned on some inflammatory cells that started this cascade that is causing inflammation. And part of that gene that got turned on is somehow turning on inflammatory cells, which are making lots of inflammatory proteins, what we know as cytokines. And um, 
the medicines that we have either kind of block the production or the effect of different cytokines. And we are not good enough yet to know in a given person exactly what is making their arthritis churn. But we know that in general, certain types of medicines tend to work. And so we kind of have an order of things based upon historically what we've learned and what's worked. So we kind of go through a general, you know, list. Um, and that list is quite frankly the same for a lot of different inflammatory arthritis, whether it's RA or psoriatic arthritis, we use a lot of the same stuff. And so a lot of people, you know, maybe their rheumatoid factors, you know, borderline or other tests are all negative and they go, my joints hurt. And they're like really frustrated because you can't give them a, a specific diagnosis. And I say, listen, this is what I love about rheumatology because there's so much uncertainty. And you have to be able to explain uncertainty in very certain terms, meaning, you know, I know what you don't have, you know, based upon all these things. I don't think you have cancer causing this. I don't think it's lupus. I don't think it's all these other things that you read about. And then they and I say, but I don't know really what it is. And it may evolve into something. But the good news is if I can't give you a specific definitive diagnosis, like really bad rheumatoid arthritis, I said, that's probably a good thing. Because quite frankly, there's a pretty good chance that this just kind of might fade away over several months to a year, you know. So a lot of these things, we don't know what turns on the immune system and we don't know what turns it off. But once the symptoms and the things have been going on there long enough, we need to try to turn it off with what we've got because A, got to make you feel better and make your joints better. And I want to make sure that you can function in life. And I want to make sure that if there's really causing a lot of inflammation in your joints, then I can at least turn that down or off so that it doesn't damage the joints, you know, irreversibly. And, um, and people tend to accept that pretty well, you know, and then when I'm kind of getting into some of the medicines, I might get into a little bit more of the, you know, this one blocks this cytokine and this one blocks that one. And that's why you see ads on TV for all these things. And, you know, all those side effects sound horrible, but it really doesn't happen in that many people, but don't worry, you don't need that yet. But you know what, if we needed to listen, I would fully explain it, but don't worry about that. Don't watch those ads. You know, we got some things that have been around for 50, 60 years. We know how to use them. We know what to monitor. Yes, don't read the label too closely because all of them cause every side effect known to man. I will tell you what you need to worry about, you know. It's there's a lot of there's a lot of counseling, not just about what they've got, because they gotta understand what they've got, but also to help them understand, you know, what the medicines are doing. Cause I think, you know, I'm one of those maybe old school believers, if they understand more, they're they're more likely to be compliant and take what's you know, what what my sales pitch is for them. Cause that's what it is. That's fantastic. It, 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 yeah. I just find it's one of the most helpful things we have specialists explain like what it would sound like in the office with them when they're talking to a patient with a new diagnosis. I, I just love hearing that from people. So thank you for that. Yeah, sure. Stuart, did you have something? Uh, no, I just want to ask you where you wanted to go from here. I, um, we yeah, kind of covered we... a lot of the the high points. You know, what I would ask, so, so some other questions I would ask her, I mean, she's had symptoms for a year. You know, mm. well, the other things that helps me gauge how bad is I say, well, what have you taken? You know, I'll say, I mean, you've been having these symptoms for a year. Is it bad enough that you've taken some Advil or a leave? You know, if you haven't, why not? You know, because if someone's like, oh, I take a towel here and there and I'm okay. Well, that tells me they're not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, people have a lot of options out there. So it's like, okay, you take some Advil. Well, you know, how much are you taking? You know, one or two, you know, one or two Advil a day, and I feel okay. Well, you know, at that point, I'm not so worried. If they've got real, true and true inflammatory arthritis, they're typically popping, you know, six, eight hundred, you know, ibuprofen, you know, two or three times a day just to function. You know, mm-hmm. so knowing what they've been on also helps me gauge kind of what am I going to suggest to them, whether I know what they've got or not. Um, cause I'm typically going to, especially if, if it's early on and I'm kind of doing some other blood tests and I don't have the results back yet, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start fairly basic. If, if someone comes in and they've got, you know, this lady, she's got pretty significant inflammatory arthritis. She may well respond pretty well to some ibuprofen and she may say, Oh my God, I don't want steroids that, you know, that made Jerry Lewis look like a, you know, <laughs> a good year blimp. I'm not going to go near that. So that's a whole nother discussion to kind of say, listen, this is, this is actually pretty good. But if, so, if, if, if theoretically someone's been trying something that's not helpful, you know, I'm going to say, listen, I'm going to give you, I, want, I think some low dose steroid prednisone is really going to be very helpful. And then, uh, and, and sometimes that, that will have already happened. I mean, I, there are many situations where someone may have had, you know, a, a shoulder pain, a knee pain. And unfortunately, they don't come to the rheumatologist first. Who did they go to? Well, they ended up seeing their friendly orthopedist. And the orthopedist is like, well, I think you got, you know, tendonitis in your shoulder. And, and I've been kind of fooled like that, too, because, you know, one picture in time, things things change. So they may have given them a steroid injection or they may say, well, you know, let me give you a, a Medrol dose pack. You know, the, the other thing I do not like to give people, everyone will feel better with a Medrol dose pack. It does not help in any diagnosis differential <laughs> because it's a quick dose. And then five days later, they don't feel so good. You know, it's just too quick a taper. So if, in this case, if I say, if this person has been taking some NSAIDs and I want to make them feel better and I still don't know what they've got, I'm going to give them typically 10 milligrams BID of prednisone because if it's an inflammatory arthritis, 20 milligrams should really, really work pretty well. You know, if they've got a systemic vasculitis, that may not be doing enough for everything, but 20 milligrams is probably going to make 90 to 95% of people who have rheumatoid arthritis feel like a million bucks. And if they do, that's really good because they feel better. And it's also therapeutic. I mean, it's, it's diagnostically helpful because you know that, you know, it's, it's, it's steroid responsive, which also goes along with it. There's something immune system here going on. And, and then I'll kind of, you know, taper them down pretty quick. And I'll say, hey, listen, you know, maybe this is something that something got turned on. And, you know, your rheumatoid level, you know, the rheumatoid factor was borderline, low positive, And her set rate's not that high. So she may have some low-grade viral thing that if I can turn it off, I may kind of put whatever she's got in remission or shut it off. And she may not have, you know, rheumatoid arthritis that needs some long-term treatment. There's lots of kind of low, there's a lot of low-grade stuff that doesn't need the big-time stuff. And as long as they're not getting joint damage and all that, there's no reason not to do that. So I might give people 10 milligrams of prednisone, talk to them several days later when I get the lab results back. Hey, they feel great. Okay, let's drop to 15, stay at 15 for a week, go to 10 for a week, go to 5 for a week, you know, see me then. Make sure they're not, you know, and, and they're feeling great. They say, hey, stay on ten, five for another week or so and let's stop it. Hey, listen, if you've got rheumatoid arthritis, it's going to come back. You know, we're not losing anything. And I'm giving the person the chance of showing me, can we, you know, with a little bit of medicine for a month, you know, basically shut this off. And I'll be damned, but sometimes it does, you know. The, the idea is you don't want to commit somebody to one of the more, like certainly not a biologic or 
or or methotrexate, some of these other right. other therapies, unless you're really sure that that they need this, because this could be a correct. lifelong therapy. Mm-hmm. That is correct, right? So when when do you do you reach for the DMARDs then? So there again, so if 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 especially if some if someone has high level serologic markers, if someone has high level rheumatoid factor, high level you know CCP especially, those are the two markers and a high sed rate. But those are markers that are telling me that there's this is really turned on. I would say with those people, I will um, I would say I, I I put them on the prednisone, see how they feel. I might taper them down to fifteen or ten, and kind of get a sense of how they. feel. Feel and then you know two weeks later again, you don't want I don't you don't want to throw the kitchen sink at them up front unless you have to because you're gonna also gonna scare them away and they need to kind of have it register and sometimes they can't think clearly if they're not feeling well so it's almost like and and some people I need to make them feel good and then make them realize that they actually do need the medicine. They may say, hey, I'm better. I don't need any other medicine. I say, okay, well listen, Ben, let's taper and see how you feel. I mean, I want them to realize that they need it. You don't want to push it on them too quickly, or then they'll, oh, I skip a week here, I skip a week there, and then it's just it's kind of hard to gauge. But I would say within a month or so, I'm usually, if, if I think that they need it, and I've kind of given you the criteria why, then I'll start them on something. And there again, if it seems, if, if, if you've had a year of symptoms and it seems to come back as soon as we get down to, you know, 10 milligrams of prednisone, I may say at that point, especially her plain films are okay. There's, she doesn't have a high level serology that makes me think that she clearly has bad signs. I'll start on one of the immunomodulator type DMARDs, I would call them, that are not immunosuppressive. You know, why would I pick an immunosuppressive? So I might give her sulfasalazine or hydroxychloroquine. The problem with those, as with all of the DMARDs, is that they take at least four to six weeks even to kick in. Um, and so you kind of have to keep them on some prednisone and then be kind of tapering it down, but usually hopefully low dose. But, um, so I'll usually reach for those first before I'll even reach for methotrexate, um, unless I I have a feeling that they're going to need something. I want to take a a moment to define some terms because this was always a little bit confusing to me. NSAIDs are anti-inflammatories, but they're not considered DMARDs and and prednisone, steroids, also anti-inflammatories. While I read that steroids, maybe they have a little bit of effect on disease progression, they're not considered DMARDs. DMARDs, we're talking about methotrexate, the immunomodulators, the biologics. Is that is that all Correct. accurate? Okay. Yes, that is. Yep. Yeah, I think that there there used to be a feeling that, that prednisone was a great Band-Aid, but it wasn't really affecting mm. long-term, you know, kind of joint damage. And I think that the thinking on that has actually changed. I think some long-term studies showing people who did well on, in some cases, you know, just like five milligrams of prednisone for years, mm. um, it seemed to kind of slow down or stop joint progression in milder cases. Um, and sometimes, uh, when people are on some of the DMARDs that, you know, may not be enough. And so you end up using a little bit of prednisone here or there. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm very comfortable <clears throat> with a lot of people keeping them on two and a half to five milligrams of prednisone for pretty long periods of time, especially if they just need something more, maybe they can't take NSAIDs for multiple reasons, you know, renal insufficiency, GI stuff, whatever. Um, I mean, steroids have their own issues too. I would say that, you know, unless they're diabetic, um, you know, two and a half to five milligrams of prednisone are rarely problematic. 
but sometimes, you know, you don't get too much fluid retention, CHF issues, but some people can be sensitive to all that too. But uh, I think people are sometimes a little bit too scared of, of low-dose prednisone, kind of more chronically. I think a lot of the rheumatology community with some studies in the last five years plus are really comfortable or more comfortable using that where needed, especially in rheumatoid arthritis. I think in stuff like lupus, where there's not as many options, I think there's a lot more chronic low-dose prednisone used as part of treatment regimens just because you don't have any other options. Because our audience is more skewed towards primary care, I think it would be helpful to maybe say, okay, for these patients who are on chronic prednisone, they're coming to us on methotrexate, or maybe they're on a biologic agent, what are some of the things we need to look out for, immunizations, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of, you know, before you start the biologic agents, making sure they have hep B, hep C, latent T, like that sort of thing I think we should talk about. Um, Sure. I think it's a very good idea. Yeah, I think that's something that we probably, and I I think personally— I probably don't do enough, you know, so I see somebody and I put them on some prednisone. Well, I'm, I'm kind of immunosuppressing them. So, you know, are they theoretically maybe not going to be as responsive to a Pneumovax or, a, you know, different vaccines already up front, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's like, oh, they're, if they're really, you know, if they've, if they've got some bad serologic markers, well, I want to put them on methotrexate because it's going to take four to six weeks to even really kick in. So it's almost like we jump into the therapeutics, um, and I think that we almost need a little bit more of a pause saying, oh, should I have vaccinated them already? You know, mm-hmm. usually you're doing some lab work once or twice in that first month or so. So there's opportunity to, you know, do the hepatitis serologies because if, you know, if that's positive, that kind of, you know, adds in a whole nother layer of, oh, should they be treated for that? Is that related? That's a whole nother, you know, kind of complicated discussion at times. But knowing that their hep B, hep C is negative is critically important. Um Knowing if you're going to be potentially using a biologic down the line, knowing that their TB status is is negative, not because these things cause TB, but because by inhibiting at least the TNF inhibitors, although it's gotten uh, attached to all the biologics, I don't know that I fully understand completely why, because I think it's a TNF issue, but I'm not absolutely an ex- expert on that. You know, and it's worth kind of people knowing kind of how that got discovered. So when the bio- when the TNF agents, which were the first biologics, came out in the late 90s, there were trials going on in this country and there were trials going on in Europe. And there was an incidence of TB noted. Um, and it was much higher in Europe than here. And they were kind of looking, trying to figure this out. And somewhere along the way, someone realized or discovers like, well, you know, TNF, tumor necrosis factor, is kind of one of the critically important cytokines that's used to kind of maintain granulomas when people have uh, quiescent or you know inactive TB. And when you block or inactivate TNF's cycle, you basically allow those granulomas to open up and suddenly you get reactivation TB. And there's a much higher rate of indolent TB in Europe than in this country. So that's why there was more TB in Europe than in the U.S. But the fact that there was this differential, not explosion, but incidence of TB in new people on these agents is really what made people realize, oh, my gosh, TB is a risk here. Well, it's not not new TB. It's reactivation TB. So that's why it's like, oh, you got to put a PPD on everyone. And then you get into the issues of, well, is is that good enough or should you be doing a quantifier on gold, which is obviously immensely more expensive. But when some of these people have been on prednisone for a little bit while, well, can you even interpret their PPD, you know, accurately? You know, that's kind of a whole other question. So in some way, shape, or form, we should be checking to make sure that they don't have TB. 
Now, another question is, should if someone's on a biologic, which is kind of jumping the gun a little bit, should they continue to have like a quantifiron goal done, you know, every year or two? The practice is evolving. I don't know that there's great science behind that, um, but you know, every couple of years I'll kind of tend to do it. I don't think that the guidelines, I don't believe at this point, say that someone on a biologic should have a quantifiron goal done every year. I don't believe they say that. But but in terms of kind of the information that, you know, primary care doctors should know, I think that kind of remembering, you know, what immunization should they get? Should they, you know, I think studies clearly show pretty well that when these people are immunocompromised, or immunosuppressed, the incidence of zoster is higher. So with the various zoster vaccines, if you can get it, you know, it's probably a good idea to give them that, you know, before they start to get too immunosuppressed. Um, and then kind of the other standard, you know, stuff, especially Pneumovax. Um, so that, yeah. that is a good thing to know. I wanted to read um, off the list. The list mm-hmm. that I saw was flu vaccine, hep B, if they're not immune to hep B, um, pneumococcal vaccine, uh, human papillomavirus, HPV, and then, like you said, the zoster vaccine. Those were the main ones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then just all the other normal adult immunizations. Yeah, and, and something that just so people are aware of it might be evolving. I saw a study just recently that... <laughs> Uh, some group, I think they held somebody, either their methotrexate or the biologic for like a week or two, and then somehow measured the you know response, the antibodies, I think it was the flu vax. And it was it was higher in the people where they'd held it. Um, and in some of these agents, if people are you know relatively well controlled, you can usually skip a, a couple weeks and their disease activity is not going to spike back up. So, you know, quite frankly, at some point in the future, we may come flu season, have some people holding their rheumatoid med, you know, for the week or two before, or after whatever, they get a flu vax because the efficacy, you know, may be shown to be higher. We're not there yet, but there's some interesting stuff raising that question about whether we should be, uh, as I say, kind of modulating the effect of uh, the amount of immunosuppression around the immunizations. That's a moving target. Along the same lines, we had questions on social media about when someone's sick, when someone's septic, what do we do with, let's say someone's on a DMARD, either an immunomodulator or a biologic, or, and then the other one was when someone's going for surgery. So when someone's sick or when someone's going for surgery, can you answer those? Like, how do we handle those medications? Yeah, I think when someone's sick, we clearly hold those agents. I think the, the immunomodulators, the sulfasalazine and hydroxychloroquine, it's probably not as critical. Usually if they're sick and in the hospital, you know, a lot of those oral meds are being held anyway, and that's not a problem. Uh I think sometimes it's harder to tell, you know, if they're if they're on, you know, some low dose prednisone, you know, what what what's the threshold to to stress them? You know, I don't know if there's any great science behind that one. Um, as far as surgery, um, the the evidence is really kind of all over the map. I think I think actually this, most of the early evidence was like there's really no good studies that people need to have a bunch of these agents held. I think surgeons who are usually writing the orders pre-op get nervous. They don't want anything that might theoretically affect healing or infection risks. So typically they they say we really want them to hold the medicine. You know the week before and maybe the week after, and usually it's not a problem. So I'm not kind of putting up that fight because usually if especially if people are fairly well controlled, they can go two weeks without even starting to flare up as long as they've been fairly well controlled and quiet. Um, and if someone's kind of sick, I just have a low threshold to to skip that dose, especially if the biologic or the methotrexate. 
Uh, and one of the other things to think about is, is interactions with other medicines, which I think um, people are not aware of enough. Actually, first of all, so when you think about, you know, someone's on methotrexate and you want to give them an antibiotic and you get these, you know, war automatic warnings or, you, or you're refilling it, you know, methotrexate interferes with penicillin. It's like, what? You know, quite frankly, there might be some theoretical interaction or increase in level. I, I just, I don't, I don't think it's significant enough. So I would give the non-evidence-based off, off label <laughs> advice that I would, I just ignore that one. The penicillin methotrexate, I kind of ignore. Uh, PPIs, increasing levels of, I think methotrexate, I, that's also, I don't know what that means. I kind of ignore that one. Um, <laughs> there's issue with NSAIDs and methotrexate interaction. There again, I, you know, these people are on both these meds for their RA all the time. I don't see that as a clinically significant interaction that I've ever seen. Um, uh, but but something to definitely be aware of are, are sulfa. Methotrexate's in the sulfa family. So when we give people methotrexate, we also give them extra folic acid. And that's because studies have shown that taking extra folic acid seems to decrease some of the methotrexate side effects that occur. People can sometimes get some mucositis, mucosal ulcers. Um, people will sometimes get some hair thinning. Frank alopecia is really pretty rare. But a lot of people say, you know, I brush my hair and I see more coming out in the sink and this is making me panic and you kind of look and I don't see any bald spots, you know, but listen, alopecia is a huge concern. And actually there's a very interesting literature um, out there on uh, worries that patients have about side effects of medicines, especially these rheumatoid medicines. And, and patients are much more worried about those things than we are. And we probably don't kind of give them enough explanation or credence when we are talking that to them about that. But anyway, so, so, but sulfa, so methotrexate is a sulfa med, you know, sometimes they might be on methotrexate and sulfasalazine, you know, that there's actually kind of a triple therapy combination that some studies show is probably as good as biologic, but it's a lot of pills. Weekly methotrexate, twice a day, sulfasalazine and twice a day, hydroxychloroquine. It's a lot of pills. It's, um, there's a, a rheumatologist out in Nebraska who's really done a lot of work on this. So when you look across the population, where is triple therapy most commonly used? You guessed it, in Nebraska. <laughs> There's not a lot of other places that are doing it because there's like so many pills, you know. But long-term trials and data show it, you know, might be, in some people, as good as biologics. But at the same time, biologics have been the biggest advance, without a doubt, in, you know, rheumatology. I didn't say that before. But but the sulfa issue, back to that for a minute. So methotrexate is a sulfa med. It interferes with folic acid metabolism. Something like Bactrim is alpha, also a sulfa med. And occasionally you will see people who are on methotrexate, especially if they're at higher doses, who get put on Bactrim for their UTI, trimethoprim sulfa, and they get leukopenic. And it's it's something I, I would I would avoid trimethoprim sulfa as my antibiotic of choice if someone is on methotrexate. And if I needed to put them on it, I would make sure that I had a you know white count and I would check one, you know, in a week. Because I've seen a couple cases and read more where that can be a real kind of life-threatening leukopenia that can occur, a real bone marrow suppression. So that's one interaction I think people really should be aware of, probably more than most others. Um, you know, most of the meds, I mean, hydroxychloroquine doesn't require blood test monitoring. One of the nice things about it, there's this issue as far as uh, when the breakdown product seems to develop uh, 
can deposit in the retina. So retinopathy screening is what's recommended. Uh, it seems quite infrequent. In my training, it was really infrequent. Studies recently have shown maybe it's a little bit more than it used to be. Used to be, and there's actually been a kind of a controversy back and forth. The American Academy of Ophthalmology has said, you know what, we don't need to do this yearly for the first five years. But after five years, we should do it yearly. You know, back at one point, there were recommendations, get retinopathy screening every three months, then every six months, then every year. It's been a little bit of a moving target. So the doc is kind of sometimes stuck in the middle. But I'd say at this point, in addition to the frequency of screening, kind of the dosing, it's typically 200 milligrams twice a day. There are some studies saying, you know what, you shouldn't be going, you know, more than 200, maybe 300 based upon, you know, weight of the patient. Um, so it's not like everyone should be on 200 twice a day. So those are kind of but subtleties, but there are issues there that people should at least be aware of. Um, Sulfasalazine, it's a sulfa medicine also, clearly requires blood test monitoring. I've seen a couple of people over the years who got leukopenic on it. So uh, LFTs can go up. Uh, and so with a bunch of these meds, obviously methotrexate, liver functions can go up. Uh, there's issues with alcohol and methotrexate. Some of the early studies looked at people who, you know, kind of retrospectively who were drinking regularly, clearly had a higher incidence of liver function abnormalities and fibros liver fibrosis, literally. So early studies with methotrexate suggested they get liver biopsies after like two grams total. A lot of that data was in the psoriatic arthritis population, which historically and just sociodemographically, the population tended to drink more, maybe because of their psoriasis, not in the rheumatoid. So the question was, well, can you take the data on liver stuff and psoriatic arthritis and really apply it to rheumatoid arthritis? The feeling kind of on a study about 20 years ago was probably not. So we kind of got around and said, well, as long as people's liver function tests stay normal or don't go up more than a little bit once a year, we're not too worried about it. But you kind of there's, there's some subtleties there. And some of that stuff, quite frankly, you know, I'm kind of getting into a little bit of detail are reasons why I think in most cases, when people are on some of these meds, they should be seeing a rheumatologist. Yeah, There's a lot right. of subtlety here. It gets me a little bit afraid when people um, are treating too much RA on their own. There's just, there's a lot of stuff with these meds and tricky things and interactions. And, mm. you know, it's just, it gets me, it gets me a little bit skittish when I see primary care docs holding on a little bit too long on some of this. Completely agree. I think what's useful for us uh, doing the show is basically we talk to you, we get a sense of what's the basic workup. You gave us kind of the labs we should do, what to look for on exam. Maybe we get x-rays before and then we can kind of send them to you. Maybe we start them mm -hmm. on, maybe we start them on prednisone if it's going to be a, a long wait or something. But you, we, we call you and, and get them over to you once we've done this basic workup or maybe the workup is cooking and we get them in to see you. And, uh, and then we sort of know what to look out for as, as far as like making sure that we have them on the right, get the right immunizations. We, if they're on these medications, we look them up and try to follow, monitor like the blood counts and things like that. Uh, if they haven't seen their rheumatologist in a while, because mm -hmm. sometimes you see these patients, they're on the medications and they might not be making it to all their doctor's appointments. Right. So we, some of this ends up falling on us. And it's easier in the, you know, in some of the suburban areas that we live in where you've got access to rheumatologists. I think if people are in more rural areas where they don't, it's tricky. I think a lot of this is 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 perfect for, you know, some of the telehealth, you know, um, e-consult, you know, stuff. You know, I, the rheumatologists don't necessarily need to be seeing 
all of these people in follow up, but they they kind of probably need to be doing helping guide how to follow up some of these folks um, because that's where the tricky stuff happens. I wanted to ask you a diet related question that came. It was it was on social media more than once, so I want to ask. Is there any such thing as an inflammatory diet? As far as you know, is there any evidence behind that? Or is that just sort of kind of out there? Is that pop, you know, just pop culture or pop science? Right. I, I would say from my experience, it's pop science. There's not any good evidence. People ask that question a lot. You know, what foods should I avoid <clears throat> that are less inflammatory? You know, and I've seen a number of people who, you know, based upon other people's advice, gone on different elimination diets. And I'll say to them, you know, as I said earlier, I say, listen, I don't know what turned on your immune system to cause this. And there are lots of different, uh, you know, antigens, substances in our environment that, you know, we react to in different ways. And we see this all the time, different aspects of the, you know, the, the gut microbiome. And I mean, who knows what is a stimulation to our given immune system? So I say, listen, if you notice any patterns in what you eat, there might be something there. I would not generally say, you know, stay away from nightshades or stay away from corn or something. But if you notice that, you know, every time you eat corn, the next day your joints feel really bad, you know, there might be something there. So experiment, stay away from all corn products for a week and then have a lot of corn and let's see if it happens, you know, because there might be something there. And that doesn't mean we're going to change, you know, treatment or therapy, but you may find that if you avoid certain foods, you know, you feel better, you know. I think, you know, we're, you know, an extreme of that is, you know, the, the gluten craze that we're in. And there's very interesting stuff looking at, you know, is it even really gluten? Is there some other substance that more antigenic in some of those foods? But I would say that in general, I don't think there's a whole lot of dietary impact on this. But any given individual is very different. I, I, I found it kind of striking. We, we did a show on inflammatory bowel disease recently, and the paradigm there for treatment is, they start from top down. They start with the biologics if someone's presenting with pretty severe disease, and then they probably don't taper. But it sounds like in rheumatoid arthritis, you sort of step up to a biologic, and you may taper from what I was reading. Is that is that true, or am I misunderstanding? I, 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 no, I think that is true. I think... I think the, um, I mean, clearly there's a move to, you know, treat the target and the target is low disease activity because then you're going to have less joint damage. I think that, um, I think probably the difference between th what we do and inflammatory bowel disease is we can see what we're doing. <laughs> they kind of have one view and then they go, oh my God, it doesn't look good in there. We need to shut that down. And it's almost like they can't really monitor it. And if it, you know, it's rip roaring bad, you know, it's almost like the, you know, suddenly you get, you know, colonic rupture. I mean, there's, there's bad, more bad stuff that can happen emergently with IBD than there is with RA, you know, unless someone has some, you know, really weird, severe systemic vasculitis, which is rare. So I think that they're, they're more scared of bad events in a way from the disease than we are just by the nature of the diseases that we have. Uh, how about some take-home points, Robert? So I think, uh, as we've kind of said, the labs are helpful. 
Um, I think that don't use them too much. I think, you know, high, high level rheumatoid factor, CCP, said rate, it can be very helpful. Don't go, don't go jump and look and don't do ANCAs and ANAs and, and just don't do all those other funky tests that if you come back, if you get something that's kind of borderline positive, you're not going to know what to do with it. You know, I, I like to order tests because I have a sense of how I'm going to interpret the result. And I, in general, find far too much testing without a real goal in mind. So that's one take-home point. Uh, use clinical judgment. You know, these are, these are clinical diagnoses. Uh, and I think that especially as, you know, internists, that's one of the things that we need. That's, that's one of the things that sets us apart from, I think, a lot of other specialties. And we need to kind of use it and use it well. Um, I kind of mentioned at the end there, I think the role of advanced imaging is not really clear. Um, whether it's ultrasound looking for erosions or synovial thickening or MRI. Um, clearly, people in the right hands, those things can be very helpful. But I think that some people, it's kind of the sexiest, latest toy, and they're just kind of doing it. And I'm not certain that we necessarily know how to in interpret that as much. Um, and uh, don't use Medrol dose packs, you know, <laughs> too often. I think I see that too often. Uh, Low-dose prednisone is a good thing. Um Sometimes if you can get someone in to see the rheumatologist pretty quick, I would try to avoid doing it because then, you know, if that kind of quiets things off, it's kind of harder for the, the new consultant to really kind of get a sense of things. You know, it's, it's nice to kind of historically get a patient's story, you know, two weeks after they've been on some prednisone. But if their joints are all pretty normal back at that point, it's a little bit harder for me to necessarily judge what they were like two weeks before. Um, and be careful with these medicines. They, uh, you know, they're great. But um, don't be a cowboy with them. Uh, well, I hope you had fun. I mean, I think this yeah. will be, this was insanely practical for our yes. audience and high yield. It's, it's really, uh, really useful stuff. Thank you. Sure. I'm glad to do it. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes Ish. at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Should uh, rename it to gnawing food. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We're provided. We're provided. That's right. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks, as always, to our writers and producers for these episodes. This time, it's Dr. Cyrus Askin and Elena Gibson, who's uh, helping with art and figures. Thank you so much, team, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs, Garbertelli on Instagram. And by the way, I saw the Instagram account for the first time tonight. Yeah. Exactly. And Chris, the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. I'm glad you could uh, talk about your first Instagram experience. Yes, yeah, uh, first, first time on, I've ever seen Instagram. That's right. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. And no Paul. Good night, Moment Paul. Silence. Wherever you are. Hashtag where's Paul? Yeah, sure. Something like that.